Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and this week marks the 75th anniversary of VE Day, Victory in Europe, the day that the Second World War ended in the European theatre at least. And what better time to talk about this very important 75th anniversary than this week. And joining me is someone who's been on the podcast before. His podcasts have been some of the most popular we've done, and I'm sure this one will be no exception. It's Professor Gary Sheffield. Gary, thanks for joining us via Zoom all the way from the UK. Good to see you. I mean, 75 years, it's it's hard to believe how much time is slipping by, isn't it? But, you know, these, these monumental World War II anniversaries are coming thick and fast now. Um 1945. I don't think there's a lot of focus on 1945 in Europe. Everyone seems to sort of get to, you know, D-Day and then summarise the war as sort of being wrapped up relatively quickly from that point onwards. But there was so much going on in 1945. And obviously, we can't cover the entirety of everything that was happening, but we're going to touch on a few key points, aren't we? Well, that's right. But you've struck on a really interesting point. Well, in fact, two points straight off. The fact that uh, you know, it just seems not so long ago um, we were commemorating the, the 40th anniversary of VE Day. At least those of a certain age remember it. And of course, people are getting older. I mean, I mean, I don't know whether it's made made any news in Australia, but there's a, an elderly uh, former officer, a Captain Tom Moore, who's made a huge splash by by doing charity work to raise money for the National Health Service. It was his hundredth birthday yesterday, and of course, the connection between uh, a Second World War veteran and coronavirus uh, is something that, that's that's really very evident. Of course, that generation is slipping away uh, uh, through through Anno Domini. It's it's hard to believe, isn't it? It feels like we only just said goodbye to the World War One veterans, and now within a decade, we're going to have said goodbye to the last World War Two veteran. Well, uh, yeah, I think uh, going by the by the First World War veterans, I think they might go on a little bit longer because they seem to be coming quite long lived. But uh, but the other point I think, which is really you made, is really important, is that 1945 is a bit of a black hole as far as the public memory is concerned. Actually, even in terms of scholarship as well, because we tend to do, as you say, we tend to do do D Day, we do Arnhem. Uh, if you're American, you do the Battle of the Bulge. But then that's it. 1945. Oh, it's all over quickly. Well, actually, it's not. There's an awful lot of fighting and huge amount of suffering in in those uh, in those five months of of, of 1945 when before the before the Second World War ended. Well, there's a lot to talk about, Gary. Where, I mean, where would you like to begin? Well, should we, should we start with the situation? Uh, yeah, at the beginning of 1945. That sounds fantastic. Paint us a picture. 
Right. Okay. Well, it's uh, going against the narrative that some people have. It's all, yeah, it's, it's sort of uh, plain sailing uh, from the late '44 through to through to VE Day. Of course, uh, on the 16th of December 1944, the Germans launched their massive uh, counteroffensive in the Ardennes, the, the Battle of the Bulge, and this was a failure. In fact, it was a complete failure. And it used up some of some precious resources that the Germans had in an offensive in Belgium that was always going to fail. Uh, it made some initial progress, largely because the weather was really bad, which meant that the Allies couldn't use their air power. And then two days before Christmas, the air cleared, the, the weather cleared, and suddenly it was free for all as the Allied air forces attacked uh, the, the Germans on the ground. But of course... It, it actually caused a really big shock to the the Allies, who did think it was simply a matter of grinding forward and destroying the Germans. Of course, they they they, they knew that it wasn't going to be easy, but the fact the Germans could produce this uh, you know, this this uh, attack, which took well everybody by surprise, was a tremendous shock. And so, if you're looking at it from the point of view of say Eisenhower, Supreme Allied uh, Headquarters. In, in 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 early January 1945, it doesn't seem like a done deal. It doesn't seem like the war is over. But the Allies are in in, in the Western Allies, basically the the, the British, uh, Americans, and Canadians, effectively with with some French and some other forces, are advancing quite steadily, in spite of what I just said about about the bulge. But of course, on the other side of the um, of the continent, the Red Army has really got the bit between its teeth. Uh, in 1944, it overran pretty much most of Poland, or to the middle of Poland anyway. And uh, on the 17th of January, 45, in part as a response to the Battle of the Bulge, at least it, it made the situation easier for them, the Soviets launched an enormous offensive, the Vistula Oda offensive, which I suspect very few people in the West have heard of. Anyway, it, it took them um, from from the River Vistula in Poland to the River Oder in Germany. Uh, Talking about the, the boundaries in 1945, they're, they're different now, and it was enormously destructive. Uh, it chewed up the German forces. Um, masterly display of operational art on behalf of the Red Army. Basically, they carried out deception operations fooled the Germans into sending their reserves to wrong places and then smashed through. And it took the, the Soviets, the Red Army, to within about 40 miles of Berlin, at which point they paused basically to allow the logistics to catch up. But the the battle in the East, um, I'm not I'm not saying this this, uh, this underplays what, what the, the Americans and the British and the Canadians are doing in the West, but, but in the East, it is simply on a far vaster scale. And of course, the other theatre, which we tend to forget about, uh, is Italy. And the uh, the Allied forces, again, the British, the Americans, the Canadians, who mostly uh, depart and join the rest of the Canadians in northwest Europe early 1945, but lots of other forces as well, including the Free French and even a Brazilian corps, are continuing to push their way north. Um, the idea that... Italy was the soft underbelly of the Axis, and it would be a, an easy victory, had long gone by. It was a gruelling, attritional slog up the Italian peninsula, which is basically a, a river mountain sandwich. And the Germans conducted a, a model fighting retreat, falling back from river line to mountain line to river line to mountain line, 
and the Allies are still at it in early 1945. So Germany effectively does not have a chance of winning. But nonetheless, victory is still some way off for the Allies. Well, talk to me about the German mindset, because, I mean, what the hell were they thinking? From 1942 onwards, you know, it was just defeat after defeat. It was just, I mean, talk about inevitable. They're, they're facing the greatest powers in the world against Germany virtually on their own. I mean, what was their mindset? I mean, and they, they'd had the experience of the First World War only 25 years earlier. What could they possibly do? What were they thinking at this time? Well, numerous ways of answering that. But to pick up on your last point, the First World War was a was a really significant influence. And the idea was completely untrue. But this was, was what, what believed, particularly at the highest level of, of, of the Nazis, Hitler and so on, that the German army had been in the field in 1918, had been stabbed in the back and, you know, Things could have been different. This time, they were going to fight on to the bitter end. So, so the, there was a negative lesson from 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 1918. Um, well, what were the Germans thinking? Uh, some really excellent work's been done on this, not least by Professor uh, Ian Kershaw, who, who is a British historian, one of the leading historians of Nazi Germany. And his answer in an excellent book he published five, six years ago called The End is that the mindset of... Germany, Germans, plus the structure of the Nazi state helps to understand why they kept going. And he cites all sorts of examples of, you know, when the war is in its last moments in March, uh, April 1945, the war is obviously lost. People are still carrying out um, unthinkable acts of violence in support of the Nazi state when it is clear the Nazis are not going to be around for very much longer. Um, it's partly its indoctrination, uh, particularly with young people, because, of course, the Nazis had been in power since 1933. So a young soldier, a young man, young woman for that matter, in 1945 would have known nothing effectively but the Nazi regime. They had been through the Hitler Youth or the female equivalent, and they simply believed that they had to follow orders and follow orders were to follow to 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 the last the last the last bullet effectively fight to the last bullet but also hitler himself never gave up belief in ultimate victory until really the very very end he pinned his hope on by this late in the day in in, in wonder weapons so in particular the the v1 flying bombs the v2 ballistic missiles which were still being thrown at Britain and places like Antwerp, you know, a key, uh, key, 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 key port. And so until very late in the day, Hitler came to believe that he could turn everything around. He drew comfort from history when, uh, um, when President uh, Roosevelt died in April 1945. He says, ah, it's just like, I think it was... 1763 so i forgive the dates when um uh the uh the leader of russia died fighting the seven years war against uh, frederick the great and russia changed sides he said right this is happening all over again the german state was in this grip of the so-called idea of, of of working towards the fuhrer basically carrying out what they believe that hitler wanted all the way through the structure of, of, of Germany, there were people who were fighting to the last man because that's what they thought Hitler wanted. And the German armed forces were incredibly brutal in, in killing 
executing anybody on the German side who showed any signs of weakness or wanting to surrender or anything like that. Under those sorts of conditions, actually, it's not surprising they fought on to the bitter end. I, I, recently, I'm watching um, that, that film Fury, you know, about, about a German, uh, sorry, about about American tank crew yes, in Germany, yes. which has its moments as, as history. But one thing I thought it captured really well. There's a scene where uh, 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 the Shermans are, uh, are driving along a country road and suddenly out of a thicket, there's a group of, of young men, basically Hitler youth types, who launch an ambush on a tank. Now, clearly, they're not going to change the war by doing that. They, they, they are killed in pretty short order. I thought that actually captured really well the mindset of at least some people in Germany at the very end of the Second World War. Well, it really was an existential threat for the Germans, was it? They were fighting to for for everything that they believed in. And I remember the the famous Russian quote that was scrawled on a building: "Enjoy the war because the peace will be terrible." You know, the, yeah. the, there was no question in the minds of Germans that they had no option but to fight on. Isn't isn't that the case? Well, that that's absolutely right. Because the interesting thing is, if you if you thought it through logically, they should be fighting to the last man against the Red Army and surrendering in droves to the Anglo-Americans because most people, well, they had no illusions what, 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 the, what the Soviets were going to do. Um, but they thought, actually rightly, that the, the Anglo-Americans, Anglo-American Canadians would behave in a much more civilised manner. And, you know, if you're going to be occupied by anybody, be occupied by the Americans or the Brits. Um, and yet, of course, you, you found them fighting doggedly against the Western forces as well. So, so logic simply did not come into it. Gary, there was so much going on at this time. I mean, you've mentioned, we've touched on so many things there. We touched on Battle of the Bulge. We touched on what was going on in the West. We touched on the huge actions in the East, the V weapons. There was also a huge aerial war still being raged, wasn't there? I mean, it, give us give us your, I mean, we can't, as we said, we can't talk about, the, the podcast would go for several hours if we if we talked about everything that was going on. But what are a couple of the key elements that that, that define what was happening in 1945 for you? Well, I mean, the air war is extremely important. Um, the it's uh, it's it's uh, a little known fact that by far the greatest devastation reaped by the by the Anglo-American bombers in a strategic bombing campaign over Germany actually happens in the last year of the war. Uh, basically, in the run up to to D Day in June 19, 1944, the the Allies fight in effect a battle of Britain in in, in reverse, as in. They've got bombers going over Germany um, with very strong fighter escorts. The the P-51 Mustang uh, is a long-range escort fighter, which means they can actually carry the fight over Germany. And the Luftwaffe is basically shot out of the air. Um, And that means then that bombers can can wreak havoc the length and breadth of Germany. And so you get strategic bombing going on. You also get tactical bombing, which amounts to the same thing, basically pounding cities in front of um, in front of the advancing allies. And of course, you've got you know, the little matter of, of, of ground artillery, which is doing a lot of damage as well. Uh, and one of the most famous, I mean, probably notorious raids of the entire war takes place on the 13th and 14th of February 1945, which are the raids on Dresden. Now, this has gone down as some people would out and out claim it's a war crime. Um, that's actually a legal term, and I'm actually not going to go there, but put it, su- 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 suffice it to say, 
it is a, it is hugely controversial. I remember being at a conference on on the Dresden uh, raids about fifteen years ago, and I've never seen such bitterly opposed camps in which you had people sort of looking at it from a sort of military strategic point of view and people looking at it from a humanitarian cultural point of view. And pretty well, there was no meeting of minds. But Dresden in particular, I think, is, 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 is very significant because people, and this is going back to the point you made very early on, simply forget how bitter fighting was in 1945. That from the point of view of Allied headquarters, Dresden, uh, Dresden was a was seen not merely as a legitimate target, but as a desirable one, because it was a city which had pretty well been untouched by bombing at that stage. It was a major uh, railhead. It was, if you like, a sort of a communications hub. And if it was attacked and successfully destroyed, it would hinder the Germans moving their forces to the Eastern Front to face the Soviets. Many other cities had been attacked under, under similar rationales, up to that point. What made Dresden different is it was crowded with refugees. It was uh, a cultural gem. Um, it, was, it was described as, as a jewel box, so beautiful architectural rest of it. Very little uh, touched up to that point. And air raid um, shelters were, were, were pitifully inadequate for the population. And it's one of those days which happened in, in, sometimes in the air war, um, the attacks on Hamburg in July 1943 is another example when everything went right for, for, for the attacking bombers. And basically, they created a firestorm, which burnt out the city, killed 25,000, 30,000, something like that, people. We don't really know for sure. Grossly exaggerated figures have been put out, over 100,000. It's not that. more, Probably 25 or 30,000. But that's bad enough. Uh Following the RAF raids over the night of the 13th, 14th of February, the Americans then attacked the following day, basically, as they, their crew would have called it, to bounce the rubble. Um, and this was shocking, even in the context of 1945. And it's noticeable that Churchill, who was one of the key proponents of strategic bombing earlier in the war, tried to distance himself from it. And not surprisingly, uh, Arthur Harris, Bomber Harris, the head of Bomber Command, was absolutely furious about this. And it's this great moral question mark against the, the conduct of the Allies. And I'm not going to attempt to whitewash it or explain it away or anything, but simply to say that the Second World War was such a ghastly moral vacuum. And my take on it, the, I think the only take I think makes any sense is to say that it's an example of total war. This mindset by which you do anything to the enemy to hasten victory. Uh, and if you like, the, the juggernaut of total war was careering down this road and it wasn't going to be stopped until the war was over. So you've got Dresden, you have other raids, you've got appalling atrocities being inflicted on the German civilian population by the Soviet forces advancing. It was a truly grim and gruesome period. And one I think that we in the West have never really come to terms with. We have a sort of, I won't speak for Australia, but certainly in Britain, we have a very sort of glowing, um, you know, sort of rosy, nostalgic view of the Second World War as being Britain's finest hour. And yeah, you must have had the comedy show Dad's Army being shown in Australia. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The, 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 the Dad's Army image. Well, 
you talk to someone from France or Germany or Poland and Russia, they find this sort of nostalgia for the Second World War utterly unbelievable. That's because, sticking my neck out and being controversial, the British barely experienced total war in comparison to the continental Europeans and indeed some Asians. Um, figure, 60,000 roughly British civilians die as a result of enemy action in the Second World War. That's an appalling figure. 600,000 Germans are killed as, German civilians are killed as a result of the Anglo-American bombing campaign. That puts the two, that puts it in a nutshell. Britain's war is bad enough. It's barely registered in terms of horror compared to what happens on the continent. It's so ghastly that in some ways it's hard to believe it was only 75 years ago, that there's still thousands of people who lived through it and committed these atrocities and, you know, I don't want to use the word atrocities, in, but I just mean in terms of the the horror that was inflicted on other human beings. I mean, there's still people alive that, that lived through this. And in some ways, you, you, look at the, you look at the Second World War, it belongs in some medieval horror story just in terms of the ghastliness of what people were prepared to do to each other. It's, do, you, do you feel that we've... I mean, I think you touched on it there, but do you feel that we've sort of we've we've tried to move on from that in some ways? That we've tried to just focus on the glory and the triumph, and we've tried to to put aside some of those more ghastly stories. Uh, it depends who you're talking about. I mean, because there are different different national narratives. In the case of the British and the Americans, and I guess the Aussies, of course, there are a number of Australians there, particularly in, uh, in Bomber Command. I think that's I think that, that 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 that's absolutely right. We don't want to dwell on the ghastliness, although it's is evident enough at the time. You find soldiers uh, and people who visit Germany at the very end of the war or, or just after it, utterly aghast at the sheer destruction of, of the bombing and, and, and the ground fighting. And, and there's, there, there, there are attempts by the, by the Allied forces, by the Americans and, and, and the British to try and prevent, in effect, trying to pre- prevent their soldiers from feeling sorry for the Germans. There was a. I saw a, 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 a propaganda instruction which handed. I think think to American troops, saying, you know, all kids are adorable. They're you know they're they're they're, they're wonderful. But ten years ago, the Nazi who killed your buddy was one of those kids. You know, don't don't be friendly with. Them. Of course, it doesn't work, because the British, the Americans, the, the the Canadians end up you know befriending locals, sharing their food, having sex with them. I mean, it's one of the again you know ghastly things is the many um, German women had to sell their bodies to get food, what have you. Uh, on the other side of the lines, there's this appalling mass rape carried out by by the Red Army as it advances. I mean, I've been re- preparation for this. I've been doing some reading around it. I must say some of the stuff is just difficult to read. It's just so, so ghastly. But of course, it needs to be placed in the context of what the Nazis had done previously and um actually if i can just read out i found the the order that uh zhukov issued in january 1945 to the red army as it's about to cross onto german soil um the great the great hour has told the time has come to deal the enemy a last decisive blow to fill the historical task set by comrade comrade stalin finish off the fascist animal in his lair and raise the banner of victory over Berlin. We shall exact a brutal revenge for everything. And they did. Um, and that's an official that, order. That's an official statement. That, 
that's an official order and the sort of you know the the uh you you see from the from the british and the americans i mean nothing as, as as brutal as that but you do get this sense of you know you are going into enemy territory don't forget that you are fighting fighting enemies and of course in the uh in the Soviet Union, in fact, t- today's Russia, you still find, you know, the, the great patri- patriotic war uh, narrative of, you know, never forget what the Nazis did to you. Uh, very live. You also see it uh, to some extent in Poland and in the Baltic states. I think it was 2005 that the, the leaders of the Baltic states refused to go to Moscow for a VAE Day parade because, you know, Things were, were were all too raw. So from that perspective, yeah, I mean, you know, those things haven't been forgotten. But from the point of view of the British and the Americans, the the, the the Australians, that's not what we think about. We tend to think about you know the heroic moments, the Battle of Britain, Normandy, uh, uh, Alamein, that 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 sort of thing. I think you're right because it's all too ghastly for people to to, to deal with. The underlying thing, of course, is is the Holocaust, uh, and one really misleading narrative which has come out in recent years uh, is that britain britain and america and the rest of the west went to, went to war because of the holocaust was the jews no they didn't no they went to war because the second world war was like any other war it was a balance of power struggle they you know they, they, they fought because they didn't want a uh, an aggressive power to take over in most case the um the holocaust was was pretty unknown among the public until the very end of the war when they discover the concentration camps it's it's it's, it's not that people um it's not that politicians and so on in 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 britain the united states weren't aware of it it's just it wasn't put front and center of the reason for fighting which is one reason why for example the british uncovered bergen belson it was such a shock that they had they'd heard rumors of of atrocities but just to be to be presented with the reality was just completely ghastly and overwhelming. But even then, as I, I'm reading some, some, some really interesting work on this recently, instantly, not every, it wasn't immediately recognized the scale of the war against the Jews, that the Jews were seen as being one among a number of groups who had been treated appallingly by the Germans. It wasn't until after the war, really, that the full truth about the Holocaust came out uh, from, from the Western perspective. Gary, talk to me about the the balance between the importance of what was happening in the West and in the East, because it seems that in the decades after the war, even when I was a kid growing up, it was all about D-Day and it was all about the, the, the Western march into Germany, crossing the Rhine. Then there seemed to be a lot of scholarship that came out that basically said what was going on, the, on in the West was completely unimportant. The, the war was won in the East and we paid our little contribution in the West, but it was what the Russians did in the East. Where do we sit these days? I mean, recent things that I've read as well say, let's not understate the importance of what happened in the West. It was all yeah. vital to the end of the war. I mean, where do you sit in this this sort of juggling between the, the importance of the East and the West? Actually, that's a really good question. Let's just go back a little bit and say we can't forget the Cold War. The Cold War, which began at the latest by 1947, I would argue a bit earlier than that, really shapes the way that people view the Second World War in the late 40s and the 50s, which inevitably has a knock-on effect. I mean, for me, I mean, uh, uh, being in my uh, uh, in my near dotage in my late fifties, um, one of my my my, my formative influences as far as the, as the Second World War history was concerned was watching the World at War TV series, which came out I think in 1973, 74. And of course, I mean, there there is a a, a, a program 
an episode on on, on the Eastern Front, but it, it's got a very Western bias for obvious reasons. And so it suited the West in many ways to downplay what was happening in the East. Uh, a really striking visual uh, um, example of this, if you go to the, the Great American Cemetery in Normandy overlooking Omaha Beach, and I'm sure you, you must have been to, Matt, on, on, on many occasions. Absolutely. There's, there's a sort of, you know, there's, there's this huge relief, relief map which has these big arrows uh, showing how the Allies break out of Normandy and then go across Europe. And they've got little arrows coming from the east. And in in it's, it's not a very subtle way of saying, actually, you know, we, the Americans, or well, the Anglo-Americans anyway, are more important than the Russians. It simply isn't true. I mean, in terms of ground forces of taking on and... Um, well, as uh, as uh, one one famous um, uh, British historian of the of, of the Red Army put it, uh, John John Erickson breaking the back of the Wehrmacht. Undoubtedly, that was the Red Army. Um, the parallel, actually, with the First World War, I think, is with the British Expeditionary Force, the British, Australians, Canadians, New Zealanders, doing the same to the German Army on the Western Front. And I, that's one of the reasons I think why the Soviet Union and Stalin was so popular in Britain in the Second World War, because people really recognised it was the Red Army's turn this time. It was our turn last time. We don't have to do it. Where are we at the moment? I think there has been a rebalancing. Uh, at one stage, there was, you're absolutely right, this, this almost this orthodoxy that the West was simply hoovering up what was left. Um, there is some element of truth in that. I think that... One of the reasons, the crucial reasons why D-Day in the Normandy campaign had to succeed was that the Anglo-Americans needed to get a footprint on Western Europe because actually the Soviets were probably capable of winning the war on their own by the beginning of 1944, though I suspect it would have taken longer. And under one doomsday scenario, I remember doing a, a, a what-if radio program for the BBC, this what-if-D-Day fails, you end up with the, the Red Army occupying the Netherlands, Belgium and France, as well as Germany. And you had the Cold War being fought from a much less favourable circumstance from the Allied point of view, with Britain being in the front line. Of course, no, 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 nobody wanted that. But of course, the, the Anglo-Americans do play a significant role in tying down and destroying large numbers of Germans. It's just not as many as on the Eastern Front, because the Red Army is much, much bigger and the German army facing it is, is, is much, much bigger. That's not, I should say, to downplay the savageness of the fighting that's being carried on uh, in the West. British Army, which is the one I know much about, um, its losses on a sort of you know, percentage proportional basis up to D-Day are a bit less than those of of the First World War, if you're looking at fighting in Italy in the desert, which was bad enough. From that point onwards, they rock it. Um, and if Britain had been fighting the sort of intensity of combat that it gets in Normandy and Arnhem and the fighting in Germany from the beginning of the war, um, the British casualties would easily have exceeded those for the First World War. Of course, they don't, because the British really only get into really savage, intense fighting of that sort from from June 1944 onwards. Um, the, the other rebalancing I think you're referring to, there's some work by uh, Phillips O'Brien at the um, University of St Andrews. He's come up with, I think, a very provocative, I think a very interesting book, arguing that we have undervalued the importance of Allied maritime and air power in defeating Germany. Um, I don't go 100% 
with his argument. But I do think actually he makes a valid point. And we are now reaching some sort of, I think, sensible compromise in which we're certainly not downplaying the importance of the Red Army, the, the, the maritime and air component of the West is actually spectacularly, spectacularly important. Richard Overy, another great British historian, a few years ago made the point that uh, even if the Allied bombing offensive against Germany did not achieve the knockout blow, certainly didn't, even if we might say that the attacks on synthetic oil plants and transportation didn't do everything they wanted to, and well, they were pretty important, the mere fact they were taking place, and I can't remember the figures, but but millions of, of people, men and women, are deployed on the German home front in anti-aircraft defence and in uh, what we in Britain would have called their air raid precautions. And the Germ- Germans are dedicating production of anti-aircraft guns rather than anti-tank guns and lenses for anti- anti-aircraft gun uh, sites. All that is important because it diverts resources away from the battle on the Eastern Front. So there is a balance between the two, between what's going on on the West and what, what, what's going on in the East. And I think we're, we're roughly reach, reaching a sort of fair, fair assessment these days. A couple of years ago, I went to Berlin for the first time. It had been long, long on my uh, bucket list to get over there, and eventually I did. And what a wonderful city Berlin is yeah, in so many I, I ways. Did it once. I actually loved it. I, I mean, apart from all the cultural things going on, it's just an amazing place. But just the constant overlay of that battle for Berlin, you know, the Second World War and the battle for Berlin. Talk to us about Berlin. Let's let's talk about the end of the war for the Germans as as the Red Army closed in on Berlin, because that is one of the most ghastly and noble sagas in some ways that uh, that ever took place. Just the scale of the fighting and still you see just about every building in Berlin that was there during the war is still scarred by that. Talk to us just about that those final stages of the war. Right, well, well Berlin itself, uh, of course, the capital of Germany, It's it was significant as much for... No, not as much. For, it, it, it was very significant in symbolic terms as much as anything else. One of the big debates after the war is whether the Anglo-Americans should have made a dash for Berlin to get in first before the Soviets. Um, Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander, made a decision not to do so. There had already been an agreement with the Soviets how they were going to divide up the, um, the occupied zones, and they largely, largely stuck to that. And Eisenhower said, well, in effect, this was a purely political decision. It would have been a military risk to have made a dash for Berlin. He's right about that. The counter argument is, well, what what is war about if not politics? And it did put the Allies at a disadvantage in political terms after the war. Now, having said that, because the Allies, as I said, did basically stick to their agreements, even though the it was the Soviets who captured Berlin. They then invited the Allies, the the Western Allies, the British, Americans, the French, to occupy part of Berlin, which of course then turned into West Berlin, which became a key focal point in in the Cold War. But the fact that the the Soviets got there first, I think, added tremendously to their narrative of this is basically a Russian victory, a Soviet victory, with with the Allies adding their bits on in in, in the background. Battle itself, the Soviets took it in, uh, took 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 their time about it. As I've said, they they paused at the end of the Vistaroda offensive. They weren't going to um, rush it because they knew from previous experience 
the Germans could actually fight extremely tenaciously in defence. They wanted to make sure they had all their ducks in a row. So they brought up masses of guns, of um, of tanks, of aircraft, and they mounted a full-scale assault on the city. Uh, by this stage, uh, we're talking, you know, sort of... Uh, March preparations in, 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 into April and, and, and then, then, then May, the German army had ceased to be a cohesive force in the sense there was no longer a formed front. There were pockets all over the place. So, for example, the Anglo-Americans had crossed the Rhine. Uh, the Ruhr, the major German industrial region in, in, in the Western country, had, had been encircled. There were bits and pieces of the, of the German army fighting all over the place, including some still outside Germany, um, resisting up in Norway uh, and down in Hungary and, and, and places like, like, like that, for, for instance. But Berlin was 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 the ma- was the major uh, um, focus, and the fighting was extremely bloody. The the the, the Silo Heights, uh, sort of it's a lower a row of hills out to to the east of the city, the Germans actually put up some very 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 stout resistance, and and the Germans had uh, the the Soviets had real difficulty fighting through, but then it came down to street by street, building by building, house by house. Uh, it was in a sense, Stalingrad all over again, in the, 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 the same sort of fighting. It was incredibly bitter. Um, the civilian population suffered appallingly badly. The city was crowded with refugees from the east because people had been fleeing from the Red Army because if they hung around, they were murdered or raped. Uh, if they fled, they were likely to be machine gunned or or bombed by, by, by the Soviets. So they, they were getting into the city. And that basically made the, the problem of, of the, for the defenders even greater. Not to interrupt you there, Gary, but something that I read the other day that I found absolutely extraordinary is in terms of pure numbers, the greatest refugee crisis in human history, effectively, was the Germans fleeing in front of the Red Army in 1945. It was something like six million civilians were forced uh, yeah, out I of think, their homes think... and moved west. It was absolutely extraordinary in terms of the scale. Uh, Absolutely, and again, it's almost forgotten in the West. Not, 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 not in Germany. Um, I've got a, a colleague at the University of of Wolverhampton, who's who's German, uh, perfect English, been in Britain for however many years, and I was chatting to her, and she said, "Yeah, her family was from the East." I mean, I've kept where she comes from, somewhere in the West, but her family was in the East. She just said they fled in 1945. I really didn't need to to ask any any any, any, any further why. Yeah. I, um, I think yeah, six or seven million Germans. Uh, the greatest refugee crisis in, in 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 history rewrites the map of Europe because, of course, after 1945, uh, the, the the borders of Poland are shifted to the west. The, the Soviets uh, occupy a lot of what had been Poland for 1939. Poland takes over a lot of what had been Germany. It it causes fewer problems you might think because there's not that many ethnic Germans left in these areas. They have fled. I mean, there are some, but vast numbers of the population have fled. So, so Danzig becomes Gdansk and uh, Breslau becomes Wroclaw uh, and all, 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 all the rest of it. It's it's absolutely traumatic and um, not forgotten in Germany by any means, but it's not a big thing in the West. And what and I say, so, so these large numbers of civilians... Uh, in 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 berlin just just make everything more difficult for the germans to fight and fascinatingly it's when the 
the Red Army is basically almost at the gates of the of the bunker, of Hitler's bunker. He finally realizes all is up. Up to this stage, he has been basically doing a fighting a fantasy war. He's got this big war map and he's ordering divisions and armies around, which no longer exist, or if they do exist, they're down to a few hundred men. He had put Heinrich Himmler in charge of an army group who's got no skill of, of generalship whatsoever and everything goes goes horribly wrong. And Hitler decides, that's it, I'm going to commit suicide. Um, he writes his last will and testament, basically blaming the Germans for not having enough moral resilience to fight on to the end. Fascinatingly, among the defenders of the bunker at the very last are SS soldiers from France, from the Netherlands, from the Nordic countries, non-Germans who have bought into the, to the, to the, the, the Nazi ideal of fighting to the bunker, at the bunker to the very end. And before you ask, yes, Hitler did die in the bunker. <laughs> um, uh, a lot of information. There was some pretty good um, detective work was carried out immediately after the war. Hugh Trevor Roper, who later became a very, very famous British historian, although not uh, mainly mainly in other fields, as, as I think was an intelligence uh, of, uh, corps captain of the British Army, carried out uh, a lot of a lot of research and back in the 90s yet more information came out from soviet archives it's pretty sure hitler committed suicide his body was burnt and uh, it seems that part of his bo- body parts were then picked up by the red army uh, a bit later and, and were spirited away to uh, to to moscow the conspiracy theory is the soviets deliberately kept quiet about the fact that hitler's body had been found or parts of in order to to create embarrassment among the western allies because there were rumors that you know they were they were they were sheltering him or they allowed him to escape to south america or something like that but berlin was the end it was really the point at which like like samson in the temple in in the um, in the bible the the uh, the pillars are pulled down and the roof collapses upon the Nazi state, and that's it. And with 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 Hitler dead, then a major reason for resistance to continue collapses. There's no longer any point in working towards the Führer. Uh, his designated successor, Admiral Dönitz, uh, makes peace. Well, he surrenders effectively. Already, large chunks of the uh, German forces have surrendered. So, for example, the war in Italy ends, I think, on the 4th of May. It's also on the 4th of May that uh, Field Marshal Montgomery accepts the surrender of, of German forces in northern Germany on Lüneburg Heath. Um, and despite the fact that there's they, there are attempts to get a Nazi resistance movement up and running the werewolves, it doesn't really happen. Uh, by that stage, Nazi Germany has collapsed. Germany is in the grip of occupation from the east and west, and the Germans basically then have to get on with get on with their lives and coming to terms with with what's happened to them and being in being 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 occupied. I'm sure even just the discussion we're having is going to fire up Twitter and Facebook about the conspiracy theories about Hitler and his supposed escape to Argentina, etc. Just in your opinion, was there ever an option for Hitler to surrender? to the Russians. I mean, what would have been the outcome had Hitler been captured alive in Berlin? Uh, well, this is actually something which has been dealt with on numerous occasions by uh, uh, by sort of alternative historians and not, 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 not novelists. I suspect that actually if he had survived, 
not being shot out of hand by the first Red Army soldier he surrendered to. He would there, there would have been a there would have been a show trial. But of course Stalin had had previous, shall we say, on putting on show trials, and it would have been a spectacular event. In reality, it was never going to happen because Hitler was never going to allow himself to to to, to be cap- captured alive. Um, of course, we did see. I mean, not 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 show trials, but we did see trials of of war criminals in Nuremberg in 1946, in which some very senior Nazis, including of course Goering, were put on trial, and it ended up with them, you know, on on the whole, you know, the major the major war criminals were sentenced to death, uh, sentenced sentenced to death, I should say. Others, of course, um, got away comparatively lightly with with prison sentences. Um, Hess, of course, the last one to survive in, until his uh, his death in Spandau Prison back in the the eighties, and Albert Speer. But Hitler, above all else, was seen quite rightly as the personification of all that was evil about Nazi Germany. And I think historians mostly go along with the line that if it was not for Hitler, the Second World War would not have happened. I don't mean that that there would not have been a major war at some stage, but the Second World War took on its peculiarly racially genocidal character because of Adolf Hitler and because of the regime of which he was the mainstay. So, yeah, I mean, Hitler possessed enough sense at the end to recognise that falling into the hands of the enemies, particularly the Russians, was not a good idea. Well, Gary, it's been absolutely fascinating. I, I really have this feeling that we have merely scratched the surface. So so hopefully this encourages people this week to to go out and read more about what happened in 1945 and to study more. And I'm sure there'll be lots of amazing documentaries out on television and, and, and other podcasts similar to this one to uh, to listen to. But it's just been fantastic. We'll, we'll definitely get you back on to explore more of this story because there's just so many elements to the Second World War that we don't fully understand or fully focus on. Gary, just as we finish up, if people do want more information, uh, can you recommend some sources where they could find out more about this time? Yeah, sure. There's lots of, I mean, really good books about the end of the war in Europe. Three in particular, I I think are really impressive. Uh, A book by an American historian, William I. Hitchcock, called uh, Liberation, The Bitter Road to Freedom, Europe 1944-45. Paperback came out maybe 10 years ago, or two to, to, to 2008 um, a book by a friend so I will give it a plug uh, Keith Lowe, Savage Continent Europe in the Aftermath of World War 2 that came out in 2012 and uh, a book by a historian I've already mentioned Ian uh, Kershaw book called The End Germany 1944-45 and that came out in 2011 so three Fairly recent books uh, by three cracking historians that give real insights into what happened at the the end of the war. Well, Gary, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this vitally important chapter of history. It's just been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Great. and look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 